So, welcome to Philippians. It's a letter. It's a letter of love. It's a letter of joy, is what you're going to get when you read through this. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of advice. But more than all of those things, it is a letter about Jesus Christ. And it's a short one. It's only four chapters long, so that was about a quarter of it. And let me just challenge you from the outset. Ahead of these few weeks where we're going to look into this, go and read this letter. It's not going to take you long. It might take you half hour all in all, but go and read it. Go and soak in it. Allow the words to wash over you. Be familiar with it when we come here every single week. And don't just do it once. Do it every week. Do it a little bit of it a day. Whatever it takes for you to get your head and your heart into this. But we want to travel through this letter together and think it has something um, for us over these next few weeks. So, so get your head and your heart into it. But each week we're going to take a chunk of this letter, we're going to chew it over, we're going to allow it to, to speak to us. So we're going to jump straight in. No story, no intro, we're just going to go straight in. So let's go back up to uh, verse 1. So it is a letter from Paul and Timothy, who was probably with him at the time, either a scribe or he was just with him when it was written. Servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're just going to hit pause there. Now there are so many things, even in verse 1, we're a thirtieth of the way through, guys, and there's already so much stuff in here which we could talk about. So we're just going to pause there, and it's going to it's going to help us for the next few weeks if we just spend a bit of time here. So just bear with for a second. Um, I've got a map and everything. It's going to be exciting. So let's get some basics out of the way. This is a letter from Paul. That's what it says up front. And Paul wrote much of the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And there's there's lots of stuff in the New Testament, but largely there are three groups of things. We have the Gospel accounts: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those um, tell the story, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And in, in the Acts of the Apostles is the second of those three parts. And, and we did a series on that um, a while back. But essentially, that's like a biography, a story of the early church, the birth of the church, the church plants that went out across the Roman Empire and beyond. And then thirdly, we have letters. And this is one of those letters. Now, many of those letters were written by Paul, and they were written largely back to those church plants to encourage them, to speak life into them, to speak courage back into them. So this is one of those letters, and we think it's written from Rome, where Paul is later in his life. And, and until now, he's spent his, a whole bunch of time journeying around, about 10 years, journeying around um, modern-day Turkey, Greece, the Middle East. He's been planting churches, telling anyone that he could that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was his gig. And planting churches, planting communities that would then go and do that to the surrounding area. And he eventually heads to Rome, which was the hive of the Roman Empire. That was always going to be his journey. He spent a bit of time doing a few cycles of trips and then eventually headed to Rome. And he's writing from prison. So in verse 7 it says, whether I am in chains, but later in verse 13, I am in chains for Christ. And here's what you need to know about prison in Rome. If you get sent to prison in Rome in the first century, you get sent to die. There's no food, there's no support, there's no help, there's no care, there's no water. Instead, you had everything that you brought in with you to prison and then anything that other people could help you out with. Nothing else was given to you. And the reason that that's important is that there's a, a really practical explanation to this letter. Is that essentially it's a really long thank you card. Because someone, Epaphroditus, who's an absolute hero, he's going to make a bit of a cameo role in chapter 2 in a couple of weeks, he comes and brings food, he brings support, he brings care, 
once Paul has run out of all those things because Paul is really weak. He's dying. So Epaphroditus, who's a total hero, comes and brings the things that Paul needs. And Epaphroditus um, is a hero because he ended up getting really sick on this mission to help Paul. He got sick himself. It was a thousand miles by foot that he took to come and, and get to Paul. And he's from Philippi. Now, Philippi was in modern-day Greece, and it was a, a Roman colony, which means it's an outpost of Rome somewhere else. So it's still in the Roman Empire, but it's Rome away from Rome. So we've got veterans, we've got soldiers there. It would have felt like Rome. We've got the culture of Rome. We've got the money of Rome. We've got all that stuff. It would have been built um, to look and feel like Rome. So, so that's where we are based. And Epaphroditus is, is from Philippi, coming to see Paul. Paul gives him a letter after a while to say, thank you so much for helping me. Here's a message back to your church. This is what this letter is. So, catch up. From Paul, in prison to Rome, to a church in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. Why? A thank you card, essentially. And, as we're going to see, it's going to encourage them. It's going to remind them why they do what they do. And it's going to put some courage back into them as a church community. Are we tracking? Are we all good? Okay. Information overload. That's, that's verse 1. We've got 29 to go. That's a joke. We're going to move on a little bit quicker. We're going to mix and match. So, verse 4 to 6, it says this, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Just stop there. From the first day until now. It's as if Paul, in writing this letter, would say, do, do you remember what God did in those early days? Do you remember what happened on the first day of your church community in Philippi? Well, it was incredible. Don't you remember the, the life, the, the like guts that you guys had, what God was delivering, what he was doing? And more than that, he began this good work on you. He's going to carry it on to completion. Not that it was just in the past, but we're heading somewhere. Do you remember what he did? Because he's going to keep doing that, keep doing that, keep doing that to completion. And he's hinting at the founding story of the church in Philippi. And I, I love founding stories. I love founding stories of businesses, of startups, of churches, of everything, because it gives you the DNA. What happened in those early days? What happened in those tech startups in the 90s and early thousands, like in a, in a, a backroom garage of some kid, an idea has touched billions of people's lives around the world. An idea, the early founding story has impacted literally billions of people. You get so much from founding stories. Sports teams that rise through the ranks. I'm always fascinated when, when a sports team comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what, how has that even happened? And you have to go back through the story and realize that someone injected something into that team, into that culture, into that DNA that enabled it to do something. We get the same in churches, in relationships. How did you meet? What happened? Tell me, was it love at first sight? All of those kinds of things. Now, Joe and I, Joe's my wife, we've been married seven years now, and um, we're coming up to having met 10 years ago. And um, just coincidentally, Paul would have been writing this about 10 years after he planted the church, which you don't need to know that, but that's just, it tickled me. Anyway. And we decided to go digging a couple of weeks ago into the memories of how did we meet? What happened when we met? What were the, what, you know, what's the founding story of our relationship? And we met on a church weekend away, which is absolutely classic. Our next one's in January. I encourage you to be there. And uh, she was playing a guitar, my guitar, I might add, with another guy, Rob, we don't like Rob, who was teaching her the four basic chords of any worship song you need to know, plus the magic fifth one for the bridge. So she's learning to play the guitar, my guitar with Rob, who's teaching her the guitar. Now, we didn't chat on that weekend, um, but we get back to Nottingham where we lived at the time, and I eventually went for 
and plucked for the only approach that I knew I had a chance of thriving in at the time, which wasn't face-to-face, it was Facebook Messenger. We're 10 years ago. And I wondered, or we both wondered, Facebook, since they have every other detail of our lives right now, I wonder if they still have those old messages, the first messages that we sent to each other. And to both our delight and shame in equal measure, we found them, and here they are. So, 28th of September 2009, at 10 past 11 in the morning. Hey, Joe, this is me. Sorry I didn't come and say hi yesterday, which is at church. Big regret. Quite a Trump-esque sentence there. Big regret. I could swear I saw you in Oceana last week, which is a big club in Nottingham, just to give you some context. Well, hopefully again tonight, dot, 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 exclamation mark, kiss, kiss. Thanks, guys. Short to the point, bit flirty at the end. Just see what happens. So this is Joe's response. Hey, that's okay. End of church is always a mass brawl of saying hello to people. Some things never change. Am I right? Yeah, I was there and will be again tonight. A double nighter in Oceana for Joe. Extraordinary scenes. I've heard that quite a few of the vineyard little game, which the church were part of, hopefully see you there. Now, she didn't give me a lot back there. And I'll agree this isn't Shakespeare, but... We're sitting on this sofa two weeks ago, cringing, dying with embarrassment as we read it. And I'll be honest with you, if you read on, it's, it's really not very exciting. I mean, I thought about putting more up, but you wouldn't have got anything for this talk from it. You probably won't get a lot from this talk from it, from it already, but anyway. But, and yet, it was a weirdly quite profound moment. This was our first interaction. It's documented. It's actually there. This is how we first met in a kind of weird way. This is our first conversation that led to our first date, which led to walking to uni over, and and then the rest is history. This was our founding story. And if I can smoothly segue back into Philippians here, Paul is hinting here back at the founding story of Philippians. What happened on that first day? I thank God for what he did. What happened on that first day? So we're going to pause here again, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in, in this backstory the first Facebook message, if you will, for the church in, in Philippi. And to get that backstory, you need to turn with me to Acts 16. So turn back to Acts. And we, as I said before, we went through this a couple of months ago, and it's essentially this biography, the story of the early church and what happened. And Paul is a, is a big character. He starts as Saul. He was persecuting the Christians for who they were and what they did. And one day he's walking on a road to a place called Damascus, and he encounters the resurrected Jesus. Clear as day, right in front of him, he encounters him, and his life is completely turned around to the point where his name is changed to be Paul. And so turn with me and and click, um, or flick, or turn to Acts 16, and we're going to start at verse 6. Just to be clear, I'm not going to read this. It's not actually going to come from the screen, but just have it in front of you. We're going to jump in and out of this story. Um, So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So stop there, Paul and his companions. Who are Paul and his companions? We've got Paul, we've got Timothy. He was the Timothy from the beginning of Philippians. So we've got Paul and Timothy. We've got Silas, who's been with Paul for a while, uh, and now he's with him throughout a whole bunch of Acts. And then we've got Luke, who is the author of Acts, and he's going to be with them for a chunk of time from now. So they, this merry group of men, they traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, I mentioned a map earlier. Are we excited about the map? Here's the map. Okay. Underwhelmed by the map. That's fine. So what we have here is, just to orientate yourself, you're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So you've got Italy on the left. You've got Greece in the middle. We've got modern-day Turkey on the right. And we're right in the heart of first-century Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire 
um, spread out from Italy, all of this area is in the Roman Empire, across and up uh, through Portugal, Spain, as we know it now, um, France touched England. So this is, we're right in the heart of the, the Roman Empire. Damascus is on the very far right-hand side um, where Paul encountered Jesus. Antioch's a little bit higher. Rome's on the left, so that's where um, Paul's eventually going to head after doing a couple of rounds of this area. Now they're moving this group, Paul and his companions, from east to west, from Antioch, through Phrygia and Galatia, which is that yellow part, top right um, there. And they tried to go a few places, they couldn't quite get there, and they eventually stop in a place called Troas, which is helpfully not on this map. But I'm going to describe where it is. It's, oh, guys, this could be it. This could be it. This is the moment. It's there. I know, right? How good is that? That's actually changed everyone's lives. Okay. So that's where Troas is. And we read in verse 9 that whilst he's there, he has a vision of a man from Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is the bit just above that in modern-day Greece across the sea there. And he, he's asleep, and he has this vision of a man saying and, and begging him. He's standing in front of him, you must come and help us. Come and help us in Macedonia. We need you. Please come. Please come and, and help us. So immediately the next morning, they get up. They go across the sea into Macedonia, modern-day Europe in Greece, to preach the gospel. And what's Paul's strategy? His strategy is to do what he always does when he goes to a new place, which is four really simple things. He wants to go to the city, the main city of the region. He wants to find the synagogue. He wants to preach the gospel, and he wants to plant the church. Why does he want to go to the city? Because in the city, there's trade, there's people, there's culture. He can influence as many people as he possibly can when he finds the main city. So he goes to Philippi, which is the, the main city of the region. He wants to find the synagogue. Why does he want to find the synagogue? Because he wants to find people who have a framework of who God is. He, in a sense, wants to, some of that to do the hard work for him because they understand when he preaches the gospel, which is part three, that he, he, he explains who the person of Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the king, that he's the person they've been waiting for, that he's speaking to the right group of people who are going to get that. Why does he do those three things? So that he can plant the church, plant the community, so that they can keep doing that. They can replicate it and do that over and over again. It's a pretty good model. It's very strategic. He knew exactly what he was doing, and it didn't work this time. It didn't work this time. But he does precisely the first of those. He goes to Philippi, which is the leading city of that district in Macedonia. He goes outside the city, um, it says in Acts, to find a place of prayer. Why outside the city? Well, remember in a Roman colony. So two-thirds of the Jewish people, the chosen people, they're no longer in Israel. They're dispersed. They're the diaspora across the Roman Empire and beyond. And they'd find somewhere where they could settle, but because they weren't recognized as this is a place that could be home for them, they had to go outside the city walls to start a community, to start a place of prayer, a.k.a. a synagogue, where they could worship Yahweh. That's what they um, wanted to do. But Paul can't find any synagogue. And the reason he can't find it is probably because the community there was so small that this community of, of Jewish people who were there was so small that they couldn't even, they didn't have that critical mass to start a community. And instead, he has to go and find the people to preach the gospel to. So instead of going to the synagogue, people are coming to him. He can preach the gospel and plant the community. He has to go and find these people. And the rest of Acts 16, if you've got it in front of you, is essentially an extended story of him going out and finding people that he can preach the gospel to, that he can share the good news of Jesus with so that he can leave a community there and fulfill this vision of the man saying, come and help us. That is the point of Acts 16. 
And let me just give you a little spoiler alert. What extraordinary people he finds. We're going to cover three stories. The story of Lydia, the story of a fortune teller, and the story of a jailer. Three unlikely, unexpected, nuts people that he's going to have some amazing stories with. But they're going to each give us a flavor of the beginnings of Philippians. And that's going to set us up for the next few weeks. Are we all, are we all good? It is warm. But we're all good. So, firstly, Lydia. So Paul goes in search of this synagogue. And he doesn't find a synagogue. What he finds instead is a group of women, and he starts chatting with them. And he meets this new character on the block, Lydia. Now, Lydia, it says, was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, I know for all of us, we're like, ding, 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 she must be loaded. Believe me, that just that means she was. So she was a dealer in purple cloth, which meant she was probably an entrepreneur. She started a business, started a trading um, outpost in Philippi, and she was pretty wealthy. So we find this wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, And she, it says, is a worshiper of God. In other translations, it says she was a God-fearer. Now, that's code for probably not Jewish, because it would have said that she was part of the chosen people, but not a worshiper of the gods. In other words, not a Roman citizen and um, in a sense of buying into the plethora of gods that the Romans believed in. So she has some framework of who God is, We don't know why she knows that. We don't know how she knows that. But she has some framework about who God is. So whilst Paul doesn't find a synagogue, amazingly, he finds someone who does have a framework of who who God or Yahweh, as those who would have been in the synagogue, would, would know. And it says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So he preaches the gospel to her. She comes to know Jesus. She comes alive in her faith. And immediately she's baptized. She invites them into her home with all of her household are baptized. She cooks them a meal. They stay the night, the start of the church in Philippi. That's Lydia. So the next story is of a fortune teller. It says in verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, so now they've got their, their group of merry men. Lydia's now involved with her family. And they now start up this habitual pattern of prayer. So they have a place where they go and pray. They've started this as a community. Um, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, this would have been a woman who was oppressed by an evil spirit, but it meant that she could tell the future of everyone around her. Now, she was um, valuable to her master because she's a slave, because she could tell the, the future of anyone who came to her. So they, they realized they could make quite a lot of money out of her by bringing people to her. They pay money. She tells their future, and then they go. But she's, she is bound. She is enslaved in this relationship, um, which has been come about because of the um, spirit that's within her. What, what appears like a great gift to have actually is the very thing that's enslaving her. That's what I'm trying to say. But she's hanging around Paul and his friends in Philippi, and it says these, and she kept saying, she kept just like buzzing around them all the time, it says for several days, saying these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And her thing was that she was a fortune teller, so she was telling people who these people were, that Paul and his merry men, that they are servants of the Most High God, that they're telling you how to be saved, and, and, and she's drawn in the same way that we see in the gospel stories, as people were drawn to Jesus for those who were oppressed or suffering with an evil spirit. She's drawn to this group of people. And Paul, who we know has a short fuse, if you read other ones of his letters, he's a pretty punchy guy. He basically just gets genuinely fed up. She's just like rattling around all this time for several days. He just gets totally fed up and frustrated. 
And he turns around and he casts out the spirit in the name of Jesus. Now, we've been here before. If you've read any of the gospel accounts, this happens quite a lot to Jesus. And it's this beautiful moment where we have a sign and wonder of the kingdom. It's quite messy, and yet someone's walked into freedom. It's really cool. In this instance, that same thing is happening for the fortune teller, because suddenly she doesn't have this, this gift, which is actually the very thing that's enslaving her. But the masters of her are not happy, as you can imagine, because suddenly their revenue stream has gone out the window. So they're in trouble. They go to the magistrates who were the legal entity, Rome's representatives in Philippi, and bring these men, Silas and Paul, particularly these two, in front of them and say, these guys are causing chaos. They're causing uproar in our city. What are you going to do about them? So just to give you some context, because I love a picture, this is Philippi. You can go there today. This is what it looks like. It didn't look like that back then. Obviously, it would have been devastating. But you're looking down a hill here, and at the top, you've got the forum, which was the, the civil center of the city. You've got elections and government buildings, speeches taking place there. Then halfway down, you can see a big square um, plaza. That was the market. That was where you'd have trade. You'd have the hustle and bustle. And that's where Paul and Silas are brought in front of the magistrates, and a ruling is made on their life. And they were beaten they were flogged, and they were thrown in prison, all because of this fortune teller, the second of our three characters. And that leads us nicely onto the third, which is the jailer that we meet in the prison. So Paul and Silas, they get thrown in prison. Here's a picture of the prison, again, as it is today. They're put in the inner cell because um, they're recognized as, as causing uproar and chaos in the city, so they want to keep them really secure. They're bound, they're fastened, and the jailer is told, take really good care in looking after these people. Not looking after them like nice looking after them, like looking after them like don't let them get out looking after them. Does that make sense? And it says in verse 25 in Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So the story till now, we have a vision of a man begging this group, come to Macedonia, we need your help, come and help us. They go in search of him, they can't find him, they can't find a synagogue, but they do find this woman, Lydia, who's going to help them out. They start a rhythm of prayer, someone annoys them so much because of the oppression that they're under that they cast a spirit out of her. It, gets, it ends up getting them beaten, getting them flogged, getting thrown in prison. If I'm them right now, I'm in a cell in Philippi, I'm dejected, I'm disappointed, I'm feeling let down by God, I had this clear vision, and this is where it's landed me. And then there's just a hush tone at midnight. Oh, the overwhelming nerve. You're just not expecting this moment of worship. They're, they're just going for it, and everyone's listening. You can hear a pin drop, and yet they're just going for it. They should be dejected. They should be frustrated. I would be furious at God. Can you believe the things I've given up to try and do this? And this is, this is where you've landed me up in. I'm in prison in the middle of Philippi. And they worship. And this is the power of worship. As they worship, an earthquake comes, hits the city. The doors fly open. The chains come off. The jailer wakes up, which means you've got to ask some serious questions about his employability. He was meant to be looking after them. And this jailer, who thinks he's totally failed, he draws his sword to take his own life because he thinks there's no point in me living so much of the consequences of what I've done here. And Paul just stops in his tracks and says, do not harm yourself. We're all here. None of us have gone. We're all here. Don't fear. 
And the jailer is completely overwhelmed. He recognizes the power that these men have. The Spirit of God is within them. That he falls at their feet, trembling on his knees, and he says, what must I do to be saved? He goes from suicidal jailer, I've totally failed, all hope is gone, to encountering the Spirit in and through these men saying, what do I need to do to be like you? What do I need to do to get right with God and be saved? So they tell him in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So right then in the middle of the night, he takes them home. He washes the wounds on their hands and their feet where they were being bound by chains. He cooks them a meal. The jailer's baptized with all his family, which must have been asking what on earth is going on. They're now waking up. Anyway, and a few things happen after that. But essentially, the end of this story, we get to the end of Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are released. So we get all the way to the end. Give me a cheer for the end of Acts 16. Yeah, nice. A couple of claps. That's nice. It says this in the last verse of Acts 16. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and the sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Then they left. In one chapter, we have the early days, the first founding stories of this church plant in Philippians. Now, whenever you start something new, if you start a new business or a new idea or a new project or a new church or a new anything, you want to gather people who can share DNA, who can share ideas, who can pray together and say, Lord, what are you saying to us? What are you doing? You want to do that, right? So Tim and Lulu, a couple of weeks ago, we sent them out to go and help uh, plant a church into an existing community in Bow. And they, for the last year, 18 months, have been gathering as a group, the band, in order to do that, to pray together, to worship, Lord, what are you doing? What are you saying? Um, we did the same in Broccoli with Ben and Nell. And then in September, um, we're going to be doing the same with Matt and Anna in Finsbury Park. You want to gather this group. You want to have those worship nights, those prayer moments where you get DNA, you get vision. And Paul ends up with a wealthy Jewish business tycoon come Jesus follower, a woman who used to hang around them like a bad smell telling the future, a sleepy suicidal jailer and his family. This is the church planting team for the church in Philippi. So what began with vision has taken them on this crazy journey where they meet totally unexpected people in unexpected places in crazy ways with signs and wonders that throw them in jail, which gives a group of people who want to live their lives for Jesus in Philippi. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you remember what he was doing in day one? Do you remember what he did amongst your community? He who began a good work wants to keep doing it. So we're just going to pause for a second. Not least because it's information overload so far. But so far in this letter, we've had the introductions. We've had the thank you card, thank yous. We've had the reminder of where this church is from. What God wants to do with it. But then Paul pauses before doing anything else. He stops. What does he do when he stops? He prays. And we're going to do exactly that. We've had a lot of information. We've had a lot of stuff come at us. And we're just going to pause for one second. I promise you I'm semi-coming into land. I'm probably in the last quarter. So we're just going to pause for a second. And we're going to ask God to do the same thing to us that Paul asks um, for the community in Philippi. If you're happy with that. So maybe close your eyes. 
Paul says this in verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, with the time we have left, Lord, would you just reveal more of who you are? Reveal more of your love for us. Reveal more of our purpose in you in light of that love. Reveal more of what it looks like for us to live as followers of Jesus in this place. Pour out your love on us as a community. Amen. Amen. Now, with the rest of the time we have, and I, I, I say I'm coming slightly into land, we're just going to zoom into one more thing that Paul um, focuses in on for the rest of chapter one. And it's more of a, an idea, more of a theme, more of a way that he, he clearly lives his life than, than specific verses. But what happens after this prayer is Paul turns to where he's at. He's spoken into this church in Philippi, but he speaks into where he's at. He gives almost this, this status report. And what's clear is that he's in prison. He's in chains. He's said that a few times now, and he's suffering at the hands of those who have really no care for his life. It's almost a mirror image of the founding story of what we found in Acts 16, where he's in prison with Silas. But he's in prison in Rome, a far harder environment. He's dying of starvation. That's why Epaphroditus had to come. There is huge levels of suffering and of persecution that he's experiencing. And yet, when you read chapter 1 and when you read the rest of this letter, he is full of joy. He's full of life. He's full of hope. He's full of expectation. He's full of stories of what God's doing. And I just don't understand how he can do that. Paul is full You've got to ask the question, what has he found? What is the key to life that he has tapped into where he can be experiencing all those things and yet be full of joy, full of life, full of expectation for what God's going to do? So we're going to pick up the story in verse 18 in Philippians 1. It says this, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. How can he say that? How can he say that? Paul's trajectory from every human lens possible is awful. He's on a trajectory to death. In human terms, he's on a trajectory towards failure. How can he say this stuff? He's full of joy. It says later in chapter 4, there's some absolute rippers of verses in Philippians. All the, the classics are in here. And one of them in chapter 4 is rejoice in the Lord always. As if you didn't hear it the first time, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. He is full of joy. And I think the reason for that is for Paul, implicitly when you read this first chapter, you realize that there are really two ways to live your life. You can live your life centered around the person of Jesus, 
or you can live your life centered around something or normally someone else. And that someone, let's be frank, is normally ourselves. You can live your life centered around Jesus or you can choose something, anything, anyone else. And for Paul, it's pretty much as simple as that. For all of us, we center our lives on something, on someone, on our comfort, on the need to be right, on output, on work, on relationships, in fun, whatever those things are. But for Paul, he centers his life on Jesus. Everything that he has is centered on him. And here's the irony of what's going on for Paul, is that in being centered around the person of Jesus, although bound and being in prison, he's paradoxically totally free. He's totally, totally free. Because here's the thing, for prison, uh, for Paul, when he's in prison, he knows that should he die there, which is the trajectory he's on, he's going to be with Jesus. Jesus is at the center of his life. That's a good outcome. And if he's released, he's going to go out into the world. He's going to preach the good news of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of his life. That is a good outcome. It is win-win for Paul because Jesus is at the center of his life. If Paul was at the center of his life, if church planting success was at the center of his life, if an outcome of a community being planted under the strategy that he had in the first place was the center of his life, he would have failed. The irony is when you put anyone and anything else at the center of your life, you will always be limited by the circumstance you find yourself in. When Jesus is at the center of your life, you will be totally free. Because it's his work. He's doing it. You just get to partner in it. And as we, we start this letter to Paul, uh, from Paul to the church in Philippi, I, I think what Esther said is absolutely right. What, what Pete felt was absolutely right. I think we just need to give the Spirit a moment to speak to us, to allow us and challenge us to reconnect with him, to put him at the center of our lives afresh. And for some of us, that's going to be the first time we've ever done that. You read stuff like this, and you're like, oh, he actually sounds kind of cool. He sounds amazing. He sounds powerful. I'm really intrigued. For others of us, we know that on our best days, we center our lives around Jesus. And on our worst days, which are most days, we don't do that at all. We find the thing that we want to center our lives around. Normally, it's us. And I think, more than anything, he could talk about loads of specifics to people in the room, but I think more than anything, he just wants to give us an invitation as we start this series, as we explore what Paul was saying to this church in Philippi, to start on the front foot and say, Lord, I want to put you at the center of my life afresh. I want to put you at the center of who I am. I want to put you at the center of the decisions I make, of the places that I go, of the relationships that I have. I want to put you at the center again.